Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Christopher de Blake, author of the new book Flying Green on the Frontiers of New Aviation. Uh, Christopher, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. So congratulations uh, on the book. And, and as you point out at the beginning, flying green will seem to many a contradiction in terms. So I think many people will be surprised to think that it is possible to fly green because they've been presented with two alternatives, really. One is to carry on flying as if nothing was wrong, and the other is to stop flying altogether. And this is a choice that most people find uh, unpalatable, and they'd like to think that there is a third way out there. There is a third way. Um, which is outlined in the book. However, it's very difficult to attain and it's not easy to figure out exactly how we're going to get to that third way. But the reassurance I can give your listeners here at the outset is that there is a third alternative. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, is it? Because everybody knows that flying and aviation generally pose a challenge to reducing carbon emissions. And and we saw that uh, those were paused uh, during the, the pandemic. But it's pretty clear now that demand for flying seems as insatiable as ever, perhaps even more so. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, there were predictions that, that business travel would die, and business travel is indeed down. However, a lot of business um, cabins are being remarketed to leisure travellers who want to travel in greater style and are happy to pay more money. I only read today that um, with respect to the cheaper segment of the market. Some of the low-cost carriers in Europe have announced that their sales um, are back to more or less where they were pre-COVID. Um, what they have discovered, however, is that, um, uh, is that customers are willing to pay more money um, for their tickets. And the airlines were always terrified of reducing pr- or of raising prices Um, That was the core of their business model. Now they've been forced to because of extraneous factors. But they have discovered to their delight that people are still happy to pay those extra prices. The corollary of this is that um, we can now say um, with confidence that that aviation will not die if um, new taxes and new costs are imposed on the consumer. in order to green the aviation industry and green the technology. And that has always been the claim of the aviation industry is that you can't penalize um, the customer, otherwise the aviation industry will die and the airlines will die. Well, this has now been proved not to be the case. I mean, we know that that flying is extremely carbon intensive, but, but how intensive exactly is it? It's very intensive. Um, again, it depends on the scale of luxury Um, that you're accustomed to. If you fly for one hour in a private jet, your carbon footprint as a result of that one hour could be um, around the same as the yearly carbon footprint of a non-airborne ordinary member of of humanity um, in a developing part of the world. If you fly a uh, transatlantic flight from London, say, to um, San Francisco and back in economy class, that is to say in coach class, then the same is true. It is fantastically carbon intensive. Now, as a sector, um, one always hears that it's only responsible for 2.5% of carbon emissions caused by human activity. That is true. However, if you add in the other non-carbon effects from aviation, 
um, like contrails and nitrogen oxides that are also emitted into the air, you find that aviation is responsible for 3.5% of carbon warming factors um, that contribute to uh, climate change. Then, if you factor in the fact that aviation is woefully ill-prepared for the transition for decarbonisation, that it is way behind other sectors, and that it itself uh, predicts that it will carry on increasing emissions at least until 2035, then you can see why, uh, according to the worst scenarios, uh, it is possible to see that aviation may be the major contributor to climate change um, in 30, 40 years' time. Yeah, I found those statistics really interesting because, as as you say, taken together, aviation represents you know 3.5% of of global warming caused by humans, and then you compare that with cars, which I think you cite as as being around 17%. Uh, and yet, when you look at what's happening in terms of kind of electric cars, the move the move in that direction is very easy to see how uh, aviation appears to be a laggard uh, in all of this. Definitely a laggard. And it's very interesting that aviation is, however, finding ways. And really the point of the book was to find the innovators and the visionaries and the entrepreneurs who are really concerned about this and also see in this a major business opportunity, this laggard status aviation currently has. It's also very interesting to see the way that they are trying to leverage some of the uh, technological progress that has been made in other um, transportation and even, and even other sectors. So one example is that um, if, you, if you're considering possibility of electric flight, which um, is at the moment a distant possibility for anything more than very short distances, maybe up to 50 miles um, for very small complements on board small aircraft, the EV tolls or electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles being the major um, example in this regard. But if you're looking at that, then you can see that um, battery technology has obviously benefited enormously from the investments that Elon Musk has made in, in improving battery technology for, for Teslas. And there are very interesting um, efforts underway now to, um, to continue that the progress that has been made and to make it in such a way that it enables um, medium-sized aircraft to fly um, medium-length missions, you know, up to about a thousand miles within 30 or 40 years' time. But that does require significant investment and also significant or foreseeable improvements in battery technology. Another is the way that um, at present in the United States in particular, a lot of corn ethanol goes into cars. So a lot of agricultural land is turned over to corn, which then um, is turned into fuel that goes into cars. Now, that's not very green because the way that the, the corn is being farmed, or maize as we call it in, um, in the UK, isn't very green. So you would have to address the fact that the agricultural practices contribute to a lot of emissions. But if you do that, and it is possible to do that, um, then you're, you're in a position where um, biofuel manufacturers in the States are starting to say, right, all of that land that's current, currently going um, to power cars can go to power aeroplanes. And in that way, we can, um, we can achieve these incredibly ambitious um, sustainable aviation fuel targets that have been set by the Biden administration and incentivized uh, in the form of tax um, breaks uh, and, and other incentives. 
I, I suppose the, the general context does point towards a, a more ambitious uh, time, doesn't it? That I mean, this, this is, uh, it seems to me, a, a genuinely imaginative and innovative time for aviation. I'd, certainly when I look back as a, as a child, there was Concorde and supersonic travel, which was right at the cutting edge. Then we seem to take a step backwards. But yet only the other day I saw an article saying that in 10 years we might be able to fly commercially from London to Sydney in two hours using suborbital flights. So there definitely seems to have been this, this move forward uh, in thinking about aviation in this much more cutting-edge kind of way. I guess the problem is that a lot of these imaginative attempts to achieve progress, uh, many of them are actually the opposite of flying green. Some of them are indeed the opposite of flying green, and flying to Sydney in two hours is not going to help the environment. But I do think that the general atmosphere of innovation and verve and fearlessness is starting to seep through, and you're starting to see it um, have tangible effects in the decarbonisation of aviation. The last major innovation in the world of aviation was the invention of the jet engine, uh, which happened in, in Cambridge in the 1930s. And it is absolutely extraordinary that you think that the structure of the industry, the way that the airlines operate, um, uh, post-liberalisation, which had the effect of lowering prices and um, increasing their reliance on volumes, volumes and just volumes. These have had an effect of stultifying and stymieing innovation. So for 20 years now, the only real innovation in aviation has been fuel efficiencies. And there have been um, that you can, uh, you can reduce your consumption of fuel, uh, perhaps by one or two percent a year. But we're coming to the end of that. We're coming to the end of the road with respect to fuel efficiency. And we have to do much, much better. The aviation industry has set itself uh, um, a target of going net zero by 2050. And it is miles behind because the technologies that are there um, and that need development and need scaling up through injections of cash, namely sustainable aviation fuels, which can be broken down into e-fuels um, and biofuels and fuels that are made from, from fats and, and municipal rubbish and uh, the cuttings from, from the timber industry, the, from the logging industry um, uh, and various other things. And then moving on to hydrogen, which is divided into two possible alternatives, one of them being um, the burning of hydrogen, uh, just as an ordinary fuel, combusting of hydrogen, and the other one being uh, using hydrogen to power a fuel cell, essentially making it a, a, a producer of electricity. And then, as I mentioned, um, electric, all of these are in their infancy, if not um, always with respect to the technology, then certainly with respect to the scales required. So SAF, which I mentioned earlier, was produced in 2019, which was the banner year um, before it dropped again and is now rising again. I think 2019, the figure was 60 million gallons produced in the United States. In the same year, um, US airlines consumed 18 billion gallons of jet A kerosene. So that just gives you an idea of the massive, massive shortfall. Yeah, and as, as you point out, many of the innovations around dealing with carbon emissions are viewed with suspicion as well. You, you talk a lot in the book about direct air capture, for example, which is highly innovative, but also the subject of, of heated debate. And 
Uh, we've seen that with electric cars and attitudes towards Elon Musk, that these debates can be complicated and they're not just about the science, they're about political attitudes too. They are absolutely, and they feed into um, much wider conflicts to do with culture and politics and worldview, um, which I think is extremely, extremely damaging because I don't think this is a question of politics and worldview. It's a question of survival. It's a question of being in a race to essentially save the world and to leave the world in a situation in which our children can, can actually um, get on and live their lives in it. It's really nothing to do with ideology. It's to do with necessity. It's to do with um, a very elementary need to survive. And so I think that uh, people generally agree that if something is damaging, it should be um, measures should be taken to, to stop that happening. But it is very difficult from a psychological point of view to pinpoint um, the action of an individual and then say that can have an effect or to put the, uh, put the onus of responsibility onto a government that is elected for a short period and won't reap the electoral rewards from short-term pain. But it is, it is a situation that we find ourselves in. And what I wanted to do in the book was really to offer pathways of hope for people who um, are feeling a little bit bruised by the whole tenor of the debate and to offer up examples of innovation, all of which, in my opinion, are hugely encouraging. Um, I mean, if, you're, if you get on a plane at LAX and you fly anywhere in the United States, you'll be using some sustainable aviation fuel. Um, from next year, you will be able in Europe to fly using e-fuel, which is fuel that has been created by taking carbon out of the air, by fusing it with hydrogen that has been created by, through an electrolyzer uh, that is powered by renewable energy, um, uh, put through a reaction called the Fischer-Tropsch reaction, um, and all of this using thermal energy in, in Norway. And you can already fly using hydrogen um, in small aeroplanes that have been refitted and, and these use hydrogen to power a fuel cell. All of these are, if not available now, then they will be available in the months to come. And it, it does give a, a perspective of hope. If you look at Airbus, for instance, um, even bigger than Boeing in terms of its um, of scale and volume, in terms of manufacture of airframes, they have a commitment that by 2035, they're gonna be putting uh, medium-sized uh, aeroplanes up into the sky carrying 80, 80 100, 120 people um, a thousand miles or so um, using hydrogen, but in this case, combusting hydrogen. And these, all of these efforts need not only to be encouraged, but they also need to be funded, incentivized, and penalties um, imposed on those elements of the industry that are reluctant to get on board with this most urgent of needs. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of the problem is that you've talked about these innovations and but in quite a lot of the things that you were saying there, for example, on hydrogen, you were talking about small scale and so on. It's not just a question of the technology, is it, which it is highly promising and, and being put into uh, put into effect already. But it's also about meeting demand. In other words, how, how do we scale this up, even if the innovations are there? Well, hydrogen is an interesting example because it is a, a green hydrogen or turquoise hydrogen and the very different colors of hydrogen um, and they all they're all assigned a color according to where they come from and how they're produced but all these these various 
variant of an environmentally friendly hydrogen are supremely useful across the economy and um, massive amounts of investment are being poured in to the hydrogen economy, whether that be industrial or transport or for basic utilities in people's homes. So this is something in which the aviation industry stands to, to benefit as a sort of junior partner, as, as you can piggyback on the technological advances that have been made and by other larger sectors. It's true that with respect to hydrogen at airports, it's quite complicated. You've got to get the hydrogen in there and then you've got to liquefy it. So if you bring it in in compressed form or gaseous form, you've then got to liquefy it. Um, and you've got to store that liquid hydrogen at minus 235 degrees Celsius. Um, and this is a highly flammable material, so it has to be done very carefully. If you were to try and, let's say, run all of the aeroplanes out of Heathrow using hydrogen, then you would need the equivalent of four modular nuclear reactors on site simply to power that liquefaction process. And everything about the green um, processes needs to be green, otherwise it's not green. Um, you can, as I discovered when, when looking in, in greater detail at the electrical possibilities, the possibility of electric flight, you can avoid emissions when you're flying by using electricity, an entirely green technology, and you can recycle everything about your aircraft once it's ready, and you can um, pass on the battery itself to ground transportation once it's no longer considered 100% um, safe to fly in the air, it is considered safe on the ground. You can do all of these things, all of these um, mitigating factors can be done. But if the source of your energy isn't renewable, then you're not doing anything for the planet, you're not doing anything for the climate. So everything about the green process needs to be green in order for it to be green. You mentioned about individual choices um, earlier and government choices and so on. One of the things that I found really staggering in the book is that uh, you point out that flying is actually not as common as we actually think when, you, when you're considering the global population. I think you say that it's around 11% uh, of the global population flies per annum. Yes, and actually what researchers have discovered, which I also find very interesting, is that flying is done by a small number of people. It's been the majority, the vast majority of flights within that segment of people who do fly um, are being carried out by a minuscule number of people, you know, people who fly every week. So what these researchers have found is that 2% of the world's population are responsible for the 823 million international flights that were recorded in 2018, so 2% of the world's population. Now, that doesn't take into account domestic flights, and there's a lot of people flying domestically. But when you look at, when you look at the falling away of business flying and the tenacity with which um, leisure flying has managed to rebound from COVID, then you realize that what environmentalists have been saying for some time is in fact true. Flying is, has, a, has a claim to being the most damaging leisure activity around. It's done by a small number of people. Now, that's not to say that flying is unimportant economically because the tourism industry, which does account for some 10% of world GDP, is very dependent on flying. So that small number of people who do fly are bringing an enormous amount of wealth to tourist destinations. But this 
in my opinion, needs to be fed into policy making and decision making. But it is also another warning about the dependency of economies on tourism. And tourism isn't a great thing to be dependent on. It's a good thing to have in your economic mix. But if you're dependent on it, um, then it can be taken away from you very, very quickly, as um, every tourist destination discovered during COVID. So there, there are a lot of lessons here, and there are a lot of wider lessons from flying um, with respect to decarbonisation and the climate crisis as a whole. And I do find it extremely interesting that larger numbers of people are not giving up flying. I mean, there's a small, there's a small group of people who are giving up flying. Um, and I'm often asked, well, what should I do? I, I, I want to fly. I need to fly for one reason or another. And I, and I understand that. We've built a modern world around accessibility. People move vast distances on the expectation, understanding that they will be able to visit their families, you know, the other side of the globe. And it's unreasonable to expect, it's impossible to expect these people to give up that privilege. So, so what do you do? And the only thing you can do is to pour money into the decarbonisation of aviation. You need to um, accept that the price of tickets is going to go up in order to reflect that investment. And the avi aviation industry needs to be much, much more aggressive in moving towards meeting its obligations. Um, because at the moment, it front ends um, laudable declarations, proclamations, expressions of intent, and it backloads all the hard work, way into the 2030s, 2040s. That's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, you're you're pretty harsh on the airline industry as a whole in the book. Um, you, you talk about it reveling in its own exceptionalism. But you do give kind of examples that tie in exactly to the uh, the point that you were making there, that something like frequent flyer miles, for example, um, are the perfect examples of airlines, your word, toadying, uh, to those who exhibit exactly the opposite behaviour uh, that you think we should all be taking, which is namely uh, to fly less or to pay more if we're flying more. Yeah, there was a there was a, there was a very interesting and very controversial ad that KLM ran, um, the Dutch airline, in 2017-2018, uh, which was essentially saying, do you need to fly? Fly responsibly. If you don't need to fly, think about taking the train. Now, at the same time that KLM was presenting itself in this extremely socially conscious, environmentally conscious light, its lawyers were fighting tooth and nail against the imposition of a one euro 50 environment tax that the French government were um, considering imposing on, on flights in and out of France. And it's this kind of speaking out of both sides of their face um, that I think the airlines are guilty of. And they need to have not only a, a much more honest um, form of messaging, but also they need to align that messaging with their actions, and that isn't happening. So, um, yeah, of course, you, you reward the frequent flyer and encourage that person to fly more and more and more. Give them. I was speaking to a, a, on another podcast the other day. The captain had come down in the middle of the flight and uh, shaken him by the hand and congratulated him on his one millionth one millionth mile with United. It's kind of ridiculous, and it, it seems to me to be unjust as well uh, when you think that people who are suffering most from climate change are people who, who don't fly, who won't fly, who will never fly.
Yeah, I mean, you urge governments through international agreements to turn the thumbscrews on the uh, on the airline industries to force them into uh, this kind of different uh, behaviour. I mean, I guess the only question is, though, it, it isn't that to some degree anti-democratic or anti-egalitarian that flying kind of becomes something that's only for the rich? I mean, you could argue that the age of low-cost carriers, Ryanair and so on, uh, is much more egalitarian than Pan Am and the golden age of flying previously. I, I think you could argue that that is the Achilles heel in the argument in favour of raising prices, that it will price ordinary people out of, for example, their hard-earned, hard-won annual family holiday. And I completely, and I completely get that. You could also say um, I was involved in another podcast with representatives of African aviation industry, and they were um, they were addressing the no fly movement and saying, "Well, who are you to tell us not to fly? I mean, you've spent um, decades flying, and you've emitted so much, and now that we're only just beginning to fly, and we need to enjoy this mobility because it's vital for our economic well-being, but it's also something we want to do." And you turn around and tell us that that we can't do that. The harsh reality is that we are all going to suffer. We are all already suffering from climate change. And it, it will be those who have the least who will suffer the most. It won't be those who have the most. And, and so I, I think that there is, there is no alternative but to accept that ticket prices are going to have to go up or already have gone up. And that it is possible to lead a very, very fulfilling indeed a wonderfully luxurious life without flying very much. I'm not saying without flying at all, um, but I don't think that a lot of flying that goes on nowadays is strictly speaking necessary. I think it's indulgent and it only exists because the prices are so extraordinarily cheap. I'm not saying that people should be disqualified from flying, that people should not be given an opportunity that was given to, to others, but I think that the, the, the culture around flying um, evidently needs to change. And and I think one way, I mean, an obvious thing to do that wouldn't be anti-poor in that way would be to particularly come down very hard on private jets. It would be to come down very hard on the most frequent flyers. It would be to uh, introduce further taxes to business in first class, um, because of course their carbon footprint is much greater than that of someone um, in coach or economy. Um, so there are ways of, of, of nuancing this and, and of making it just a, a less blunt instrument. So the book is Flying Green on the Frontiers of New Aviation. It's written by my guest, Christopher de Blague, and published by Columbia Global Reports. But for now, Christopher, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much, Richard. All the best. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 